Dear friends and fellow progressives, welcome to Berlin. For Putin, what is the greatest threat to his power? The greatest threat to his power is the ideas of democracy, the ideas that our society is based on, and the ideas that many Russians would also like to have in their society. I have a feeling that we are in the teenager years when it comes to that role. So we are not yet an adult when it comes to foreign security policy. How can Germany live up to its security policy responsibilities in the Zeitenwende? Hi, my name is Emma Gaster, PGS content editor at Das Progressive Zentrum. And you're listening to Talking Progress our podcast that explores progressive ideas for Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces. This episode is part of our Progressive Governance series, which explores how progressives can win majorities and build capacities to govern. It stands at the intersection of social, green, and liberal politics, while encouraging innovative thinking that can deliver progress for the 2020s. This time, we're bringing you a conversation between Anne Applebaum, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and historian, who has written extensively about Eastern European affairs and a staff writer at The Atlantic, and Wolfgang Schmidt, who is head of the German Federal Chancellery and Federal Minister for Special Tasks. The conversation is preceded by an opening address from German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the Progressive Governance Summit 2022 on the 13th of October in Berlin. Putin's war in Ukraine has been nothing short of a turning point for Europe and the world. In this conversation between Anne Applebaum and Wolfgang Schmidt, Germany's so-called Zeitenwende is under scrutiny. How does this historic shift in German foreign and security policy affect Germany's society and its role in Europe? What does one of the key engineers of German politics think about progress made so far in supporting Ukraine? And has the three-way coalition in Berlin lived up to its ambitions of providing leadership in Europe and standing up to Putin and authoritarian leaders? This one-on-one -on -one conversation is moderated by Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Weiner. Now first, to Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Dear friends and fellow progressives, welcome to Berlin. And a big thank you to the Progressive Center and all the co-hosts for bringing together so many progressives from all over Europe and the transatlantic community. Why is this Progressive Governance Summit such an important and timely event? Because we are experiencing a Zeitenwende, a drastic turning point at which the supporters of liberal democracy need to come together more than ever to join forces. Hence the fitting title of this conference. Of course, joining forces and forging alliances with like-minded partners is always a good idea. This is why here in Germany, almost exactly a year ago, three different political parties decided to come together to form a governing coalition, Social Democrats, Greens and Liberals. Fortschrittskoalition, Progress Coalition, that is the name we gave our alliance back then. And that also describes the task we set ourselves, to move our country forward as a free, open and future-oriented society, with life chances, equal rights and opportunities for all. February the 24th, 
Russia's ruthless attack on Ukraine has rendered that task more difficult, but also much more urgent. Of course, even before that date we had known for quite a while that authoritarians and right-wing populists were gathering steam. Liberal democracy has been under attack for years, both from within and without. But that attack reached a whole new level when Putin's Russia invaded Ukraine. First and foremost, it is the brave men and women of Ukraine who are bearing the brunt. They are the people who are being killed and maimed, raped and deported. That is why Germany, together with all our friends and partners, categorically supports Ukraine financially, economically, in terms of humanitarian assistance and also with weapons, including heavy artillery, modern air defense systems and flak tanks. And make no mistake, we will continue our support for as long as it takes, for as long as that support is needed to fend off Russia's abhorrent aggression. All along, Vladimir Putin and his enablers have made one thing very clear – This war is not only about Ukraine. They consider their war against Ukraine to be part of a larger crusade. A crusade against liberal democracy. A crusade against the rules-based international order. A crusade against freedom and progress. A crusade against our way of life. And a crusade against what Putin calls the collective West. He means all of us. That is why Ukraine must prevail in order for liberal democracy and peace to prevail. That is why, for all of us, this is definitely not a time to indulge in what Sigmund Freud once called the narcissism of small differences. In the case of Germany, yes, certainly. Social Democrats, Greens and Liberals are different parties, or else there would not be three of them. But our differences are truly insignificant when measured against the democratic, liberal and progressive values that we hold in common. And it is these values and these principles that matter now. That is why I wholeheartedly agree with Anne Applebaum's rousing wake-up call in her book Twilight of Democracy, and I quote, Because all authoritarianism divide, polarize and separate people into warring camps, the fight against them requires new coalitions. Together we can fight back against lies and liars. Together we can rethink what democracy should look like in a digital age. Only together, I would like to add, this is key. This is what matters now. If we agree on this one fundamental understanding, we may disagree on the details and on tactics, as indeed we sometimes do even among allies or in our German progress coalition, and as you may do when discussing the way forward at this progressive governance summit. I'm absolutely certain that as long as we are united on our fundamentals, These kinds of debates only make us stronger, stronger together. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. I'm Catherine Viner, Editor-in-Chief of The Guardian, and I...
Delighted to call on to the stage Anne Applebaum and Hawkeye Schmidt. I didn't have a mic, but you knew what I was saying, didn't you? <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so um, perhaps we can just start uh, with you, Wolfgang, in light of uh, Olaf Schultz's uh, comments there. That seemed to be much stronger, stronger language than um, we've been used to. Um, he's often spoken against strong rhetoric on Ukraine, but using the word crusade repeatedly against our way of life, at one point even reminded me almost of George Bush. Um, is, is this, a, cha is this a, uh, a decisive change here? I have to swallow that one first of all. Um, I, I, I mean, I've known this guy now for nearly 25 years, working with him for 20, so I'm not surprised by that language, and I don't see any difference to the language he used before. What I see is, in my point of view, sometimes a misinterpretation of Germany's stand and position. Um, if you If you look back... For example, I recall a speech that uh, Scholz delivered in uh, St. Petersburg in 2016. He was already crystal clear on Russia, on Putin's intentions. Um, and I see, I see a clear line and position. And um, I think sometimes people misread um, what a democracy brings with it and with reluctancy. Democracy takes time, um, especially in a three-party coalition. Um, sometimes decisions take more time than you when you have a, a strong authoritarian leader that just can degrade things. It's more complicated in a parliamentary system and it's more complicated in a three-party coalition. So I think... We are very determined, and what Scholz announced at the 27th, 27th of February with his Zeitenwende, this watershed moment speech, was a pretty dramatical change in, in, in how Germany perceived several um, uh, threats, especially from Russia, and also change in, in the, our government's position. And so I would say it is not a surprise not to me, and it shouldn't be to anybody else, but I, I see what what kind of interpretation is going on somewhere, and so I'm happy to um, maybe correct them a little bit here. Uh, and you're quoted in the address. Uh, was it strong enough for you? Um, you mean the quote or the um, or the speech? <laughs> so I'm I'm glad to hear that kind of language. In that I'm glad whenever um, Western democratic leaders. Uh, begin to show some understanding of how the autocratic world perceives us. Um, you know, we didn't, for a long time, we didn't think of Russia as our enemy, and many people today still don't want Russia to be our enemy. Uh, we don't think of China as our enemy, or at least some of us don't, or we don't want to think that way. Um, uh, we don't even necessarily want to think of Iran as our enemy. You know, we have a long tradition, uh, and it's particularly strong in this country, of believing that if we remain open to the world, if we talk, if we do diplomacy, um, if we have trade, um, then we will achieve peace and prosperity. And of course, this is a win-win situation for both sides, and we expect the other side to understand that. And in a way, I'm 
glad to be talking about this subject here, as this is a this is an organization that was created at the moment when those ideas, the idea that um, you know, Vondel der Handel, you know, that 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 trade could bring change, that um, that interaction would bring peace, um, that you know, whether it's building pipelines to Russia or creating trade with China, that this was a this was not just a biz in the business interests of the West, it was also in the kind of interests of the world that we would spread democracy that way. Um, and it was a, um, you know, and it's very hard even retrospectively to separate whether this is more ideological or more self-interest. doesn't matter, really. Um, that, was our, that was our view of the world. Um, it's really been clear now for certainly since 2007 and 8 when Putin first made clear that he sees liberal democracy differently from the way we see it. Um, and it's been clear probably even longer than that with China um, that our view of the eventual convergence of world society and the end of history was not accepted by the autocrats um, and that they instead see us, and this is true, this is being increasing rather than decreasing, as a kind of enemy. Um, he was actually, Olaf Scholz in the speech was actually talking about a Russian crusade against us. He wasn't talking about us so that was maybe the difference with George Bush. He said we were on a crusade. He's now said, you know, it's a little different. <laughs> so, so, so it's not quite Just the same linguistic thing. Just linguistic. It's, it's the same word, but it has different meaning. Um, but, but, but I think that is correct in that um, for Putin, what is the greatest threat to his power? The greatest threat to his power is the ideas of democracy, the ideas that our society is based on, and the ideas that many Russians would also like to have in their society. Why did Putin see the revolution in Ukraine in 2014 as so shocking and such a threat? Because that's exactly the kind of revolution he's afraid of in his own country. Um, whether it's likely or not, it's what he thinks. It's what he said. He's been talking about that since, since at least since 2011. Um, why does he see Ukraine as an ideological opponent of Russia, as a society that needs to be destroyed? Uh, because Ukraine represents that aspiration for democracy and for open society that most some Russians would like and that Putin feels the need to crush. Um, and so you know, he has other motives as well, this recreation of the empire. Um, and the you know reinforcement of his own autocracy, but essentially you know we are the enemy, um, and increasingly the Chinese see us that way as well. You know why was you know what what did they how did they describe the Hong Kong uprising or the Hong Kong democracy demonstrations? Not an uprising really, as you know it was a, it was a U.S. plot. You know how does Iran see women protesting to have their veils removed? It's an American plot. It's the CIA. Um, how do the Venezuelans talk about, um, you know, democracy demonstrations in their own country? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's Europe and America ganging up on us. And so they, even if we still persist in our view that we don't have enemies, they see us as an enemy. And it's very important that we begin to understand that and begin to reshape our politics to, to accommodate that. Well, don't you think the West, the collective West has been um, sort of naive about Putin over a long period, um, as Anne suggests, with, you know, Crimea, with disinformation campaigns, poisoning people on the streets of suburb, small uh, British towns. It's, it's, been, it's been there obvious all along, hasn't it? The question is, what is all along? I mean, you could definitely say others were faster than others in, in recognizing and understanding what Putin was up to. But I would say that since 2014, um, 
even Angela Merkel was heavily criticized various times on her position and Putin clearly understood that Putin has changed um, and that uh, Russia and Putin's Russia is not the one that we hoped it would be. So it became for many Germans crystal clear in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Others would have said, yeah, you should have seen it in, in 2007, 2008 with, with Georgia. Um, my understanding, and that is why why Scholz used that term watershed moment, Zeitenwende, and, and said the before is definitely different than the after. That gives everybody, even those who had different feelings towards Russia before that moment, the possibility to rethink and understand, okay, this now really is an enemy and and he is he is attacking us as he calls it the collective west and i think that is more important i'm i'm a bit reluctant to then say okay let's figure out in the past who made which was take a, a mistake at what time i i don't see that this is what we need and I think the, the good thing that happened at the 24th of February and even before is that something happened that Putin did not expect, especially not after what happened in Afghanistan and withdrawal, and that is that the West, NATO, you would unite in a way we did. And my hope is that we don't start now to look for all these differences when we need to be very clear and very united and, and have a if you want to call it common front against Putin. So let's sort all the other questions out, who was wrong when um, once uh, that situation is, is under control and we have a solution. But for the moment being, we need to be united and tough and strong against Putin. Is that, is that the right approach, so I, I, you know, I agree that this is, this is the time to talk about building coalitions and moving forward. Um, but the, the discussion of who was wrong when, I mean, I don't want to play, it's not about playing a blame game, um, but I think it's important to understand how and why we were wrong and to make sure that our societies understand that. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're, I mean, particularly for Europe, you know, Europe has been dependent, um, you know, the success and prosperity of Europe in the last several decades have been dependent on three things. One was cheap Russian gas, the other was open trade with China, um, and the third was the American security guarantee. So Europe was effectively not paying for our security. Um, certain, we've lost one of those, we could lose another, and we could eventually even lose the third. Um, and preparing society for what that will cost and for how that will um, change the nature of government spending um, means that we do need to focus on explaining to people exactly how much we got wrong and skipping over that phase of the conversation and moving right on to you know defending Ukraine um, while tempting while it is I think um, is is going to leave people misinformed and I guess I guess I sort of I wonder whether there needs to be a bit of a reckoning. A bit more of a reckoning with the past, though. I mean, I'm thinking, in particular, you know, if we want liberal democracies to work together, then when the last SBD chancellor, uh, within a month of leaving office, was on the board of a of a of a Russian-owned pipe company, and the next thing you know, that the the next chancellor is building a second pipe, and uh, it just seems um, it 
don't, doesn't there need to be some kind of reckoning if we want liberal democracies in Europe to trust you? I mean, regarding the former male chancellor, it was made pretty clear that this is a disgrace and there were even attempts to... Um, get him out of the party the SPD so i don't i don't think that it is needed but if it is needed yes everybody agrees that that was not a acceptable behavior um and 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 and, and uh, merkel too i'm i'm a bit more skeptical on that i think if you if you look at, i think it's it's in hindsight it's it's very easy but in that situation um, the very controversial Minsk II agreement, for example. It, I mean, it was not to please Putin or Russia. It was also to save um, thousands of, of lives of Ukrainian soldiers that were encircled back then. And the attempt was to um, find a solution at that line of contact and to kind of freeze the conflict and then to have steps forward. Now you could say um, we should have seen it uh, and we should have... Yeah, but then what? Um, arm um, Ukraine more, and then what kind of counter reaction would that? So, and then you're in the if when um, game. I don't. I don't think that it makes sense. That that can be discussion we have for the moment being the task at hand is to be clear and I'm against Russia and we see how difficult it is and I would say look we witnessed a medical miracle the patient declared brain dead like NATO is kicking and running even two more members um, many said that um, that the EU would not be able and we saw that after 2014 um, to come up with a comprehensive package of sanctions and there we are and we have the AIDS package um, all in agreement even with complicated partners where there is a lot of um, dependency still in some member states so maybe because I'm more of that working group of optimists in politics, I would like to focus on these things um, that, in my point of view, are needed now. And let's do the reckoning afterwards and sort it out and so on. Can I just add one one thing that I think is maybe important, especially for um, a German audience? Um, th th there is a degree to which the, the events of the last six months are seen, in certainly in Central Europe, as partly a German responsibility. So you had the main European relationship with Russia. You had the biggest business relationship with Russia. Um, you were the, you, you constructed this pipeline in 2015, even after 2014. Um, and the, and the demand for constant demand for Germany to do more, which I know is somehow resented. I've, I've even heard in the last couple of days in, in Berlin. Um, it, it, you know, the demand is coming from that. Um, and, and again, just to harp again on this question of reckoning, it would help Germans to understand why everyone's so mad at them. It's yep. not just because you're rich and it's not just because you're the biggest economy and not just because you have a bunch of tanks you haven't given them yet, but uh, given Ukraine yet. It's also because of this, this, this strong feeling that goes back many years. And f it would, ha it would help Germany to understand its immediate partners and neighbors and the atmosphere to know that. That's all. Yeah, and we do understand that. And I think that's part of the discourse and part of the the consequences that we 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 
drew from from that is the Zeitenwende speech and is what we're doing. No? And, and if you go to your three elements, obviously now funding um, our armed forces with 100 billion um, is indeed to strengthen the European lack um, of, of defense. I mean, we will have probably the biggest conventional army on the European continent. And that would have been unthinkable of uh, a few decades ago that people would actually ask us for and applaud that. So something has changed. And you know, my point is that that we are, as Germany, getting into a situation that the Americans already know and have been known for, for decades. And that is people ask us for leadership and um, they want us to lead. Um, and the moment you do that, you will receive criticism for one action from two sides. One would say it's not enough and you should work, move faster. And for the exactly same action, others would say you're way too fast. Um, you should slow down. It's, it's, it's way too much what you're doing. I think that is, that comes with leadership. And my point, and that is another discussion with Anne already. I have a feeling that we are in the teenager years when it comes to that role. So we are, not yet an adult when it comes to foreign security policy. Um, we're a bit more grown up now. Um, what, what do you mean? In teenager years, you have a lot of hormones and um, <laughs> there's a lot of overshooting and um, shouting and, and not really being self-assured of yourself and you don't really know where your place is. That's where you are now? Yes. Okay. I mean, not personally, hopefully, but uh, as a country. Um, and, and we are, we are, we are growing up and, and others are getting used to that. And so I always say the Americans probably say, welcome to our world. No, we've been there for decades and now you're experiencing that. And yes, we had the largest trade with uh, Russia, but it's also true we have the largest trade with the US, with China, with probably any other country, um, because we are the largest economy. We are an export nation that comes with this business model of Germany. So I understand, I completely understand also no, that perception that we try to make uh, a special relation with Russia. Meanwhile, the Baltics and, and the eastern flank was constantly warning us um, but the truth is also, I mean, it's, it's German's role to also hold Europe together, and it has always been. And it's not that all at the eastern flank share the same views as the Poles, for example. If you go a bit further south to Hungary, then you have a completely different perception. And then you look at the south, and if you just recall the whole discussion of uh, the EU uh, membership and, and candidate status for Ukraine, it was Germany's role and Chancellor's role to bring all these different voices together. Now the Poles can attack and say, you have to do, but then you have others, and somebody needs to be the moderator and bring that together and that is traditionally German's role and, and you don't win a prize for that because that's a lot behind the scenes talking and bringing stuff together um, but nevertheless that's what is needed and that's what, what our job is. Just, just before we leave that analogy, if Germany is a teenager, what, what is the United States? They are grown up um, 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 and, and no, they're adult. I don't, I don't who are the say... children? Who are the toddlers? Um, we were. I don't. I want to tell others. Um, maybe we were the the last one. So the the, the the one that's like eleven years later than the, the this um, um, child by accident. No, but we don't want to go into that. United Kingdom is the mad uncle that's lost its mind. Um, <laughs> you said that, not me. I <laughs> we we politely smiled. You can quote me on it. Um, 
Um, Wolfgang, in principle, do you believe an alliance of democratic countries can sustain itself without relying on energy from authoritarian regimes? Yes. Um, and we are, How? <laughs> we are working very hard on that, convincing our American friends that they should deliver more. And I think we need um, long-term contracts. I mean, we are all talking about an intermediate period because Germany wants to become net zero in 2045, the continent of Europe in 2050. We shouldn't lose sight of that. So that is all something that happens between now and 2040 or whatsoever. Um, and yes, we need to diversify. Um, I would obviously want to see us to do way more with um, with the US. So that means ramping up also production. We have um, countries and fields like in Senegal, 900 billion cubical um, meters, um, which would help us a lot, but we need to explore it and we need to finance that exploration. Um, I think we are in a situation, if we want to replace that 157 BCM of, of Russian pipeline gas that went to Europe every year, we need for the moment um, gas from every every country. Um, and that and some includes, nuclear. And some nuclear as well. Yeah, nuclear is not solving, solving the problem of um, process energy and heating. So basically, we will have... 300 days um, a year enough renewables, so as a base load capacity. And we will actually have an excess of electricity. And then we have an integrated European electricity market. So the missing days can be covered by others as we would help them. For the moment, we are burning uh, gas to... Um, export electricity to France, where half of their nuclear power plants are off-grid at the moment. So it's an integrated market. We don't think that we will, in the future, it's a different question for this winter, for stability of the grid. But like on the long haul, we don't need um, new nuclear power plants, and, and we can perfectly um, live without them. Do you agree with that? I mean, I... I, I um it is remarkable that Germany decided to shut its nuclear power plants at the same time as it decided to, um, you know, expand its relationship with Russia, and that was retrospectively a mistake. It made it was part of why Germany became more dependent on on Russian energy. Um, but I do think there's a there's a there's a broader and more interesting question that, as well, which is um, whether people who care about climate change in our societies and people who care about the influence of autocracy in our societies can't begin to form more coalitions um, to create a political push for this kind of change. Um, and this is, maybe it's not as important in Germany where you seem to be already convinced of the need to shift away from, from fossil fuels, but there are other countries where this mental change hasn't fully happened yet. Um, because it is increasingly clear that the countries that have, with the wonderful exception of Norway, you know, and <clears throat> maybe to some degree the U.S., although you might have to go state by state with that, um, that, that the possession of um, especially oil and oil and gas 
um, has a way of enriching small elites um, and has a way of creating and reinforcing autocracy. And you can look at Russia, you can look at Saudi Arabia, you can look at Venezuela, um, you can look around the world. And by the way, if we are to help the Senegalese develop their um, their gas uh, industry, I hope we would do so in a way that wouldn't have that same result. I have a Ghanaian friend who, upon there was rumors or stories of discovery of gas off the coast of Ghana, he said, you know, just shut it down, you know, don't bring it on the market because it'll destroy um, the country. So, so you know, be very careful in how in how it's done in the future. Um, but and and the second piece of that is it's also, I think, becoming clear that the autocratic nations, and especially those with enormous natural resources and therefore those with enormous amounts of money, um, are capable of corrupting our own societies. So how much of our energy dependence on Russia, how much of the you know, um, uh, American anti-climate change movement, um, how many of these other you know, mis- you know, mistakes that have been made over the last several years really come from autocratic lobbying um, from bribery is is maybe not even the right word, but just the purchase of American or or German or other European officials and business people and companies. Um, how much of that has shaped our decisions about energy is is something, I mean, while we're looking back into the past and while we're trying to understand what's going on in the present would be very much worth studying too. Anne mentioned um, uh, Saudi Arabia um, there, Wolfgang, and um, we've talked a bit about China. Um, and I know uh, the Chancellor's uh, about to go on a, a visit. Do, do you think he's going to do things differently from his predecessor in relation to China? Well, he already did. So the first um, visit to the region was not to China, but to Japan. And that was clearly recognized and and. Um, Everybody knew why this happened. Again, I mean, I'm in a bit awkward position to defend the former chancellor, but I would also say that um, as Xi Jinping changed um, in the last years, also Mrs. Merkel's attitude towards China changed. And even the BDI, our business association, published, I think, three years ago, a very critical paper on China and trade with China. Um, so it, it, is, it is not static. And she seeking his third term now at, at the new party conference definitely changed the checks and balances in the Chinese Communist Party. And if you talk to Kevin Rudd, who probably knows China better than anybody, he would also say, Xi is now becoming more Leninist, he's more ideological, um, and he's becoming more nationalistic because the old contract of the Chinese Communist Party with with the people of China, that uh, its um, well-being and and wealth um, in exchange to uh, control of the Communist Party is 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 not working any longer as we see slowing down in in growth rate and the the housing bubble and so he's tightening um internally surveillance and all the stuff and covid accelerated that and then as always now to france um he is using the the enemy uh, abroad to to bring nationalist feelings and that's the typical playbook of of autocrats how should Germany be dealing with China? Do you think? Um, I sort, I somewhat feel I shouldn't be lecturing the Germans on how they should be dealing. We're with China. used to it now, so go <laughs> on. 
Teenagers do the, need to be the, told the, sometimes. And I, they love it, as you all know. <laughs> The, the most important thing to keep in mind with China, and this, by the way, I know that the business community in Europe is beginning to grapple with, is to begin to prepare, maybe not for exactly the same scenario that we have with Russia, but to begin to think about what would the world look like if we were decoupled from China. And it's a... Um, uh, you know, it, it 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 would be the end of the world as we know it, and not not physically, but in the sense of the way we think about trade, and the way we think about um, and the way we think about commerce, and the way our economies work. Um, but it's important to begin to think about it to, and to prepare for it, because the you know the lesson of the past, you know, is that you know autocracies who perceive us and our ideas as essentially. Um, in opposition to them, they see us as their enemies, sooner or later may try and shut us out or may try and cut us off or may try and extract themselves from, from relationships. Um, I've, had a, I've had business people say to me, well, okay, you know, I, I, I talked to somebody who worked for a company that invested a lot, of, you know, all over the world. And he said, well, okay, I can deal with cutting out Russia. I mean, okay, we have some companies that have businesses there and we had some employees there and we can move people out and, you know, okay, we, we understand that. But, you know, if you're going to tell me to do the same thing with China, my whole business model collapses. Um, and so getting ready for that and thinking about it and, and beginning to develop alternatives now will, could help us in the circumstances that if we face that you know, in the next few years, we would at least be ready. And I would say the same thing to Germany as I would say the United States. So we're going to open up to questions in a minute. I've just got a couple more of my own. Uh, Wolfgang, if, if, um, how big a cut in living standards do you think um, European citizens in democracies could accept? As we can see, they, if, you, if you do it right and you calibrate and um, you explain... Then I think Putin's calculation that we are weak, that we are too soft, is is wrong. And and I think the the high approval ratings uh, for what we are doing in supporting Ukraine um, in Germany show that. Um, the precondition for that is that you 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 carefully consider and think things through. And if I recall in the German debate, we had people in the very beginning asking for, for example, de-swifting um, Russian banks. That would have basically meant that we could not do transfers um, to Russian banks for the gas delivery. And others were calling for a gas boycott and we should shut down Nord Stream 1. And if we had done that in March or February, that would have had disastrous consequences um, and we were, because of our dependency, 55% of our gas came from Russia, we were not yet ready. And so what we did from the beginning of, 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 of this year, we started to prepare for that moment, considering that it might happen. Um, and we always said that any sanction should hit Putin and his regime and his cronies harder than us. And by doing that and resisting all these teenager-like shouting on us, I think we made sure that 
we can sustain the sanctions and also now with all our relief packages all over Europe, is it happening um, to support our companies, our citizens to to get through, even though it is um, a decreasing, obviously, living standard. And I think China would be a game changer. I'm absolutely sure we need our companies because it's capitalism, market economy. It's not us, the state, that does that. Um, but or basically with guarantees maybe, but they need to prepare to diversify. I'm very skeptical and I don't hear that from anybody yet on the, on the Western side that we should decouple. Yes, there is a danger that, that um, China might do that. Um, but that would, impoverish the whole world, including China. But people getting colder and poorer is is it's it's it could be combustible, couldn't it? Maybe not if it lasts for a month or two, but if it lasts th- for longer. Yeah, but th- the question is, how long will it last? And that is what we're doing. We, at the moment, we're trying to build a bridge into that new future where we're not dependent on Russia um, when it comes to energy supply. That is why, I mean, Germany had zero terminals for LNG gas. Now, at the end of this year, we will have two. And uh, coming end of next year, we will have five or maybe even six. So we will be able to substitute the 55 billion cubical meters of gas imports from Russia, probably 40 BCM might be substituted by LNG capacities next year. So we are working on exactly that to become energy independent from Russia and diversify. And so I'm convinced that, yes, we can sustain it and we, we can swallow that and and then we cushion the hardship uh, when it comes to because that was the first question was the security of energy supply that i would say for next winter if we save then we can then we can check that next winter will be more complicated and now is the question of prices and and you saw that it took some time because it's not so easy but now we have this 200 billion package in addition to 95 billion packages on relief measures and so i think yes we can we can get our society through that and i'm really nervous about uh, the political implications of of a much reduced cost of living um i'm nervous about it as well um it plays a little bit differently in every country, depending on the the the, the, the political situation. Um, I mean, for example, in in Poland, we have a cost of living crisis, which is caused partly by energy and partly by economic mistakes of the current ruling party. So, how how that plays out politically will be different from from elsewhere. Um, it is true that in just about every Western democracy, um, in certainly Europe and North America, there are parts of the political spectrum um, that are um, not just you know not just pro-Russian. Some of them are they're pro-Russian, but in addition to that, they are anti-democratic. They have a different vision of how society should be. Um, they 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 dislike the nature of modern democracy. They dislike open societies, and they want to see something different. In most countries, it's not a majority, but it exists. And the 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 fear is that this attraction to autocracy or the appeal of some kind of definitive, um, you know, you know, strong leader or um, you know somebody who can shut down debate that that does grow at times of crisis and uncertainty. And so 
my fear isn't just um, that there'll be, you know, I don't know, governments in power might lose. I am afraid of a of a long-term tendency of the rise of autocratic style parties. And they can be, at the moment, they're mostly on the right, but you can, of course, imagine them on the left, that we've known that in history. Um, and that remains a kind of ongoing underlying threat to all of our societies. And it is really incumbent on everybody in power across in all you know, Europe and America and elsewhere, Japan, it's really incumbent on leaders to pay attention to that, to understand it, to not dismiss it or think it's a fringe. Because in a in an atmosphere of crisis or loss, when people feel they're losing or they're falling behind, this is when alternative political systems become appealing. And maybe to add some more headache, if we if we broaden the perspective and not only look at our collective West, but at the global South, then we see what is going on. I mean, they... Um, We basically, at the moment, purchase any gas that is available on the world market. Problem is, 157 BCM of Russian gas that was only delivered through pipelines from the east to the west. And we basically, with that exception for the Ukrainian pipeline, a little bit of Turkstream, now taken away from the world market. They can't export it uh, through LNG because we purchased all the vessels and the, the, the terminals and they can't just redirect it to China because building up a pipeline takes quite a while, seven years or so. So basically, we took out 157 BCM of gas from the world market. That is driving up prices. You could literally see it in the in these vessel trackers where the ships are tracked, that all the LNG tankers were turning, that were heading to Asia, turning and went to Europe. So if you look at Pakistan, if you look at Bangladesh and many other places, they really are in a deep crisis, blackouts and so on. And then the secondary effect of what uh, Russia did with this um, gas thing is that fertilizer that depends in the in its production on gas is now a shortage so that increased um, food insecurity and we see that in addition with what they did with bombing the ports of odessa and so on so if you talk to and that is why we invited indonesia india um, south africa senegal and argentina to the g7 meeting and not the usual suspects like the other democracies australia and south korea because Boris Johnson called them the swing voters. Uh, these countries that didn't vote with us at the UN General Assembly. And we have to bring them over. And they would, they would agree with our explanation and our view that it's not okay to just ambush another country and that is a violation of international law and the respect of sovereignty and so on and so on. But they always, in the next sentence, they add a big but. It is you and NATO that encircled Russia. So the Russian narrative is very strong. Russia today in Latin America, very strong in Africa. And then comes, and you are with your sanctions, the reason why food prices are going up. Our people are starving. And so I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget about that. I think yesterday night was brilliant. 144 countries at the UN, uh, United Nations General Assembly that condemned what, what Putin did. But it, it, it is a lot of work to keep that alliance together. And still India and Indonesia and other big countries with lots of, of people are not with us. They're abstaining in these kind of votes. So that is in addition to, and I fully, um, subscribe to what, what Anne said. Um, that is concerning and bothering us a lot how to reach out to the so to it, it is true that we have a sanctions policy 
that we did not that is not accompanied by an information policy. So we did these different kinds of sanctions, some very sophisticated, and we've never explained them. And we have not explained them either in the world, nor did we explain them in Russia. Um, and so we have not told Russians why the sanctions are happening, what they're connected to, how they could be lifted in the future. We haven't thought at all about, especially messaging into Russia, but also into the world. And this is a this is a particular flaw of the post Cold War democratic world that we no longer think in terms of having a message and how to spread it and how to speak and what are the what and how to and how to transmit it. Um, we had, you know, we sort of lost that ability. We don't usually think that way anymore. I mean, I think it's changing a little bit in Washington. Why not? Why not? We thought we didn't need to. And then and now we're back at the beginning of the conversation because it was so obvious that everybody wants to be free and democratic. And what do we need a U US information agency for anymore? And why do we, you know, there was a long argument. Do we still need Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty, which were the American um, uh, you know, American radio, informational, um, you know, media in 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 occupied uh, communist Europe, and the idea is with this we can all disband this and we can start again, and now we can just you know, media can work on a on a it can be like a free market in media, and the best ideas will win. Well, it turns out that isn't how it works. Um, autocrats are able to dominate the conversation not only inside their own countries but sometimes inside ours they think an enormous amount about our internet and our social media and our political conversations um, the Russians think about how to promote Catalan separatism in Spain and how to promote the far left and the far right in Germany and how to promote um, a part of the American Republican Party and they and they think about it and you know it's I'm not saying that it's always effective or it always works but they do think about it it's part Part of when they when they think about how they're facing the world, that's what they do. And the Chinese, by the way, do the same. I think somewhat less effectively, but who knows? They they have a information policy in Africa that may be better than ours. Um, we just ha we stopped thinking like that. We stopped thinking that we needed to explain ourselves and to convince people. And I'm hoping that will soon change. Fascinating. Let's have a few questions from the floor. Um. I'm going to take three at a time, if that's right. Henry van Wagenberg from Baugarten, the game for science and math. My question, Ms. Applebaum, you mentioned tanks earlier, and my question for, for all of you is about okay. tanks. Why are, why Germany alone has given powerful weapons like the Haubitzen 2000, um, why is it so important for Chancellor Schultz, for the SPD, to not give tanks alone. We'll take three at a time. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. My name is Diego Lopez Garrido. I'm the executive vice president of the Fundación Alternativas, a Spanish progressive think tank. My question goes to Anne. Uh, you uh, positioned China at the same level of Russia in relation with democracy. But China has, I think, a little bit different position on Ukraine war and uh, the annexation of Donbass. Um, which are the difference, in, in your opinion, between Russia and China in geopolitical issues? Uh, it's an important question now 
uh, in the perspective of a uh, Congress of the Communist Party uh, next week. Thank you. Thanks. If we can have one more from a woman in the in the darkness at the back, there must be a woman with a hand up. Yeah, thank you very much. <clears throat> Sorry. Dina Fakusa, I'm an independent analyst on the MENA region and associate fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Just one um, point concerning, you know, whether Germany will be independent in terms of energy from autocratic states. Um, I don't think that was really a very honest answer, to be frank, because I think Germany was dependent, as we see with Russia. For the short term, we got now from the UAE just a little bit, <clears throat> of gas, but we also would like to have Qatar as a supplier. And actually also for Germany's own green transition, uh, we need like huge amounts of green hydrogen. And again, the MENA region is a very attractive market. So I don't think it's, I think we will continue being dependent. And when you say we're diversifying, <clears throat> actually we're diversif, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Ah, that's messy. Actually, we're, we're diversifying among a pool of uh, autocratic states. Um, and I think we, should, we have to be honest about this one, whether we like it or not. Let's start with that one, Wolfgang. So diversifying, but not away from autocracy. Yeah, I mean, diversifying means that you have several sources and you can only dance with those who are uh, in the room. And uh, unfortunately... Um, and this has something to do with what Anne said. You know, maybe commodities um, tend to change the way a government works in that direction. Um, if I look at democracies, I don't see that um, we could only with them on the short term, and we are talking short term here, um, fulfill our our needs. So, yeah, it will include the MENA region. And on hydrogen, we always said we will produce a lot here. Um, and then we will also have diversified um, sources of green hydrogen coming to Germany. So I'm, I'm not that skeptical and pessimistic that, that it, it will happen. But yes, on the short and medium term, we will include Qatar in our suppliers and Saudi Arabia and, and others. And, um, I mean, on oil, we are completely dependent on OPEC states, and you can count uh, democracies among them uh, with one hand, I would say. So, on the Teng question, it seems to be the recurring item in every discussion one has. Um, first of all, I think it's important to understand Germany has now is now the third largest supplier of military equipment to Ukraine after the US and um, UK. Um, and if you look at our armed forces, we are probably at the moment not the third largest army because of the flaws. That's why we need to invest the 100 billion. So it's not that we just look into our storages and say, okay, let's have 100 howitzers and uh, a few 50,000 or whatever, 100 tanks. They are not there. And that is why we do this program of the 100 billion. Um, and then um, on the main battle tanks from Western countries, we are not alone. Nobody else is delivering these tanks. Um, and there is several reasons for it. Um, one is a logistical one, and that is that any military leader would tell you that a weapon system alone is not the solution because behind 
any weapon system, there's a whole supply chain. So you need spare parts, but you also need people who know how to repair um, such a system. And if you look at our Panzerhaubitze 2000, so the self-propelled howitzer, um, the repairs that are needed are now being done in Lithuania. So we are sending these from the battlefield up north, and so they are absent there because we do not have people in the Ukrainian army who are mechanics who can deal with the system. So what we, instead of sending a few amount of what they call industrial materials, so tanks that were um, purchased by the industry when these tanks were sold because we decreased the size of our tank army. Um, instead of, of doing that, um, we said, let's help the Ukrainians get the tanks that they already know, that they have the spare parts that can be integrated in their army. And that is Soviet-style or Russian tanks like the T-72. So we call that Ringtausch or backfilling. And we did that with the Czech Republic. We are doing it um, on BMP-1 tanks with Greece, 40 Slovakia, Slovenia, and, and other countries. And if you look around, even Poland, who has 249 Leopard 2 tanks, is not delivering any to um, Ukraine. Um, yeah, but they didn't even ask for the permission. And um, believe me, we are having these conversations. Um, and there's other reasons, I would say, that... Um, so the main reason is really that one. And then there is the reason that, as I said, we have to win over um, countries in the global south who already say that NATO is involved and we are the ones that did this aggression. And the the main battle tank is on the front line um, at the battle. So it's easily captured. There's an issue that some of our partners are very afraid of proliferation and getting the technology, modern technology, in the wrong and Russian hands. And as you see, Ukraine captured quite a few stuff from Russia that our intelligence service is very happy about, that they can analyze it. So we don't want to do that. And then there's this question, um, if you have main battle tanks at the front line and then captured, and this is like um, with the German uh, Iron Cross on it, that is the perfect propaganda material to say, look, we always said it's NATO attacking us. And so this is a bunch of, of things. Um, you can disagree, and I think we can have a discussion about that, but I'm not willing to accept that people are singling out and blaming Germany for being the only ones. That is a not a collective decision, but it's something that nor the French, nor the Brits, nor the Canadians, nor uh, the Americans are doing. Nobody is delivering their modern Western um, main battle tanks like the Leclerc or the Abrahams um, to to uh, Ukraine. And if you look at how the whole um, discussion started as well, uh, Zelensky asked two months in a row, even in his address to Congress in the US, for a no-fly zone. And even though everybody told him, please don't do that, um, because no-fly zone means we need to shoot down Russian airplanes or missiles um, on, obviously, um, Ukrainian um, 
territory, so it would be completely legal. But nevertheless, that would mean this one step um, too far getting NATO or parts of NATO involved in that direct uh, confrontation. Nevertheless, Zelensky continued two months to ask for that and to apply pressure. And even the head of, for example, the uh, most influential publishing house, Matthias Döpfner von Springer, in our tabloid, asked for that. You go on and you see with the HIMARS, um, this multi-rocket um, uh, launcher that the US is um, deploying, actually together with Germany and UK, we deliver Mars 2, so these very deadly modern um, rocket launchers, and we are the only ones. Um, President Biden decided not to deliver the ammunition that would reach 300 kilometers and explicitly saying, I won't do that because I do not want to give Zelensky the possibility to reach into Russian territory. So now you could argue, yeah, but we should, and we should trust him, and he will make a responsible use of that. But I think there is a 99% alignment in what Zelensky and NATO countries want, but there is also one difference. And from Zelensky's point of view, it would make perfect sense to have NATO involved directly. Is is the most powerful military alliance on the on the planet. So for him, with him being attacked, his his cities being attacked, um, it couldn't get worse. I mean, from his perspective, it's already a nightmare, and he could use any help available. From our perspective, it looks a little bit different. And yes, we need to support Ukraine, and that's what we said. We will support them until the end. We will deliver the weapons that they need, but. We have also some own interest. And for Germans, we are not used to talk about that own interest. The Americans do it, and they do not have, with the exception now with this, with this ammunition, but they don't have this kind of debate. The French, nobody is talking about Leclerc and why is uh, Macron not delivering. In Britain, nobody is discussing that. Nobody talks about tanks. Nobody no. talks about tanks. So that's, again, my teenager year thing. Yeah, we are. It's not fair <laughs> to teenagers or <laughs> to, to, Germany. <laughs> or to Germany. Yeah, we, but we, you know, we have this tradition of of, of self um, punishing us. Um, so it's it's it's. I think that it's an it's a it's an atmosphere. Yes, and I I'm and some of the stuff obviously at the beginning we didn't talk about stuff because we also as governments are learning. So I'm responsible for the intelligence services of the federal government. Obviously, you have tons of information that you don't want to share and where you're a bit reluctant. So I was not very happy that every weapon delivery was accompanied by a press release basically stating when and where we would deliver. And I think non-adult nation would do that. But we are learning, growing up. Big answer, um, Anne. So, so let me, I just want to say something very briefly about tanks, since the Chancellor mentioned Freud already. Um, the, no, no, I'm not, not going to say what you think I'm going to say. No. I, I, I've been in Germany for a couple of days now, and it is true the tank question continues to arise, and I've been asking myself why, and I, I do think there is a deeper, um, there is something deeper going on, and this is a sense of frustration that some have, and this is not unique to Germany, you have the same thing in the United States and elsewhere, 
with the, um, the, the absence of, uh, there's a refusal to say what victory looks like. Do we really want the Ukrainians to win? You know, are we prepared mentally for the Ukrainians to win? Have we thought about what the world will look like when they win? Um, how would that change Europe? How would it change Russia? How would it alter power relations? Um, and, and, you know, every, and th there is a reluctance to focus on that, to speak about it, both in Washington and Berlin, but also in London and lots of other places. So I'm not, this is, this is not about Germany. Um, and, as the war has continued, and particularly since the successful offensive three or four weeks ago, um, that possibility has become more real. Um, and I'm hoping that the tank argument is really about that. In other words, people are beginning to say, yes, we would like to think about Ukrainian victory, what that would look like, how it would change the world, and so on. Um, and the reluctance of statesmen and people in power to address that is what is frustrating people as much as just, you know, the odd tank. Um, do you want to respond to that? I also was asked a question about China that I want to answer, but so I so said, this is a completely really interesting, you know, what are the differences between Russia and China? I mean, they're of course very different in many very obvious ways and so on. Um, the main difference is that at least until recently, um, whereas Russia was a revanchist power that did not like the global world order and wanted to change it, and that's actually what Putin has been saying in his crazy speeches for the last several months, um, China likes the way things are and has benefited from them enormously and would like to continue um, trade, this is at least true until now. Um, maybe this is changing now. Um, and that's given them a different attitude. So China was not interested in overthrowing American democracy or in undermining European politics, and Russia was. Um, and that was because they had a different um, they had a different attitude towards um, you know toward, towards the, the world order as they saw it. So China was not China also has a, a more self-confidence and a sense of itself and isn't, um, isn't a isn't trying to restore a lost empire. Um, Putin is somebody who spent a lot of his younger years as a KGB officer here in Germany. Remembers when the Soviet Empire included Eastern Germany, and seems to have some fantasies about returning even to that. Sometimes he alludes to that, and he does have a special obsession with Germany, perhaps on those grounds. Um, and so, but China doesn't have that problem. It's not. It's not in the same um, position in Ru as Russia, and that makes it different. I mean, I do think that the um, the events in Hong Kong, um, maybe even the degree to which the Uyghurs have begun to make their voices heard on the world stage, um, have you you do hear the Chinese now focusing more, and you hear Xi using the language more of you know, sort of anti-democratic, pushing back at democracy, a more ideological language than they used in the past. Um, and this could lead them in that direction. I mean, so, you know, up until now, their attitude, to, even towards their partners, has been, we don't care what government you have or what political system you have, as long as we can make money here, so what? You know, that there could be, you know, there could be a change. And that's something that we should watch for very closely, because once the Chinese decide that it's in their interest to undermine democracy, then that will be an additional, um, an additional problem for us. But for for now, I would say that's in geopolitics the the the, the biggest difference. And so, for example, their their main problem with the war in Ukraine 
um, is that it's destabilizing. It upsets their trade relations. You know, they don't want Europe to be impoverished because then, you know, their trade with Europe is also weakened and so on. They also sell a lot of stuff here aside from uh, selling stuff there. So it's not really in their interest. It's certainly not in their interest for Russia to use nuclear weapons. That would open a Pandora's box for them. It would break a taboo. Um, it affects their Asia probably even more than Europe. Um, and so they're, so the, they're, you know, that's clearly not, this war isn't what they expected. I think Russia, you know, we know there was some kind of agreement with them, um, you know, before the war. It seems like the Chinese said, okay, it's okay as long as you don't mess up our Olympics. Um, uh, I don't think they expected this kind of extended operation. I don't think they expected this kind of conflict. And it's pretty clear that they don't like it. And they've been making noises to that effect. Um, whether they will actually put an end to it, whether they can stop it, we'll see in the next, in the coming months. Yeah, I just wanted to offer an additional explanation. I, I completely share that question of Ukraine victory. I think it is understandable that politicians shouldn't, in the West, shouldn't answer that. I think it's perfectly good that think tankers, journalists um, think about it. But the question, the moment we talk about Ukrainian victory, the question of a good journalist would be, okay, what does it mean? And then we would be in the position to tell the Ukrainians, should, um, for example, Crimea be included um, in that victory or not? And I think that needs to be the decision of the Ukraine Ukrainians and the Ukrainian um, uh, president, and it's it, it can be a tough one either way. So we are very reluctant in, in entering in that debate, uh, but yes, indeed, but, it's it's a discussion that should take place and is taking place, but that's why we as politicians are reluctant. And maybe if I just can offer another explanation, and this is, I think, everybody wants to 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 have this war ended the sooner the better so everybody is looking kind of for this magic wand that makes it happen no and at the beginning it was swift then it was like the gas export then it was heavy weapons and now it is tanks and sometimes i'm tempted to call it the the v2 syndrome of the germans that we think there is this wonder weapon that would make magically make things go away and now the leopard 2 because we are so proud of our technology is that wonder weapon that will end that war and it won't yeah so i mean the the, the ukrainians um received uh, 600 main battle tanks from russia only in the last since february in the last counteroffensive it was 200 tanks that russia donated to ukraine um so compared to the numbers that we could mobilize this is what is helping and they can be immediately integrated and we see that so there is no magic wand that war won't be ended just by sending german tanks or any other western main battle tanks that's the bad news just before we close on one in one line you would like a ukraine victory and what to happen to putin i would like um our politicians to speak openly about a Ukrainian victory. I would like them to um, to be focusing on what that will mean, um, and I would like them to be thinking more about what is the long-term strategy for Russia. And if it means a different Russia, I think we should agree that that's good. And I would that's all I'm asking. <laughs> I'm sorry we've gone over, everyone, but I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Wolfgang Schmidt and Anna Applebaum. <laughs> If you want to learn more about the Progressive Governance Summit or rewatch our debates, 
go to progressive-governance.eu slash live, or check out the link in our show notes. The Progressive Governance Summit is Europe's largest conference for progressive politics. Each year, a network of progressive leaders comes together to share political programs, positions, and strategies. The network includes activists and policymakers from the local level to heads of state, and is supported by 25 leading political foundations and think tanks. This podcast was produced by me, Emma Gaster, from Das Progressive Zentrum, with music by Armin Mualem. Thanks for listening, and catch you at the next episode of Talking Progress, the podcast that explores progressive ideas for Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces.